Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. On today's show, the president of the Vancouver Canadians will join me. We'll talk about the team's upcoming season, as well as the importance of community to the Canadians brand. Plus, threats facing Canada's investment industry. We'll hear what the Investment Industry Association president is watching in 2019. We have two events coming up that I'd like to draw your attention to. BIV's Business Excellence Series is kicking off its 2019 season on February 21st. We'll have a panel of experts who will discuss the due diligence required when buying a business. On February 28th, we'll have our Retirement Ready panel. Our experts will walk through how to successfully get yourself out of business and into a healthy, wealthy, successful retirement. Both events will be at the Shangri-La Hotel. Both start at 3.30 p.m. And both, of course, have more information available at BIV.com slash events. You're listening to BIV Today. On Friday, the Vancouver Canadians host the ninth annual Scotiabank Vancouver Canadians Hot Stove Luncheon. It raises funds for the Canadians Baseball Foundation, which in turn supports local charities, teams, and organizations throughout the Lower Mainland. Vancouver Canadians President Andy Dunn joins me now to talk about the event, but also the team's broader connection to the greater Vancouver community. Good to have you in studio. Thanks for coming in. It's nice to be here, Haley. Thank you. I think anyone who follows baseball are going to recognize some of the the guests you have in attendance tomorrow night. Tell me a bit about the fundraiser. Well, tomorrow, uh, it's a luncheon to begin with, and it's our ninth annual. And we've had some great keynotes in the past, but every year we bring out Paul Beeston, who is Mr. Blue Jay. We'll bring out Ross Atkins, the current general manager. In the past, we've had Robbie Alomar. We've had Fred McGriff. We've had Russell Martin, Aaron Sanchez, Marcus Stroman, because they were ex-Canadians. But this year's keynote will be longtime winning manager, Cito Gaston. So it'll be one of the first times Cito's been to Vancouver in quite a while, and we're excited to have him join us. That's great. And do you have a fundraising goal in mind for tomorrow? You know, it's funny because I never put a number on expectations for what we want to do, you know, because part of what we, we do is with the Vancouver Canadians Baseball Foundation, you know, we run the, we run our own little league. So we have eight weeks of ball games at Nat Bailey, uh, support UBC baseball, support challenger baseball. We have a scholarship program now through the boys and girls club that's funded by Jeff Mooney and his lovely wife, Suzanne. But to get back to the, the original questions, I don't ever put a number on it because what we're looking for, I want people to come have a good time and I want them to want to be able to, and want to be to come next year as well. Excuse me. Um, But we want financially support. Obviously. Mm -hmm. I mean, we cannot run our program without financial support, but a lot of the things we ask for is people's time. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to give money to support the little league program come out and mentor, come out and be a coach, come out and hang out with the kids, be an umpire, teach them a skill. So it's as much financial as it is, you know, we want people to invest from the heart, whether it's financially or just donating time. The Canadians have been in BC for quite a long time. Have you noticed that people who are maybe impacted by the team's community work, they come back as adults and are wanting to give back? Have you gone full circle yet? You know, it's funny. No one ever, nobody ever stops me in Vancouver and yells at me because we didn't bunt in the eighth last night. <laughs> Everyone has a story about going to the Nat, whether they learned to keep score, whether that's where they had their first snow cone with their grandfather, they caught a foul ball, they got an autograph back in the day. But it's funny because now we're starting to hear from people that, hey, I played in the youth baseball league the first year and it's really changed me 
now I've got friends and we hear from kids who have received the scholarship at UBC. We've heard from some of those people. Now we're starting to hear stories about the scholarship program through the Boys and Girls Club. Great stories coming out of it of people that were troubled and really had not a lot of hope and really needed some support and just needed a help and get around some in a better environment and now have an opportunity to go learn a trade. And our scholarship program is really about learning a trade. It's not a four-year, but it's, it's substantial money so people can go out and learn a trade. Because if certain trades these days, you can make an outstanding living. And mm-hmm. uh, I think the first one, one of the first ones we did was a young lady who went out and got her hairdressing license. I mean, she's set up forever now. She can always have a job. Yeah. And that's what's important. And that's what we're trying to instill. You know, it's not always a four-year degree, but there are ways to have a, to better your life through what we can provide through the foundation. So, yeah, you know, the one thing I want to do is I want to have eventually someone who played in the Little League, goes on to play at UBC, plays for us. We end up hiring as an intern. To me, that would be the best full circle we could go, but I don't That's That's quite an ask. It could come. Well, the more people you impact, it's a numbers thing, right? It is. It really is. And we're fortunate. We've had over almost 3,000 children run through our Little League program, and it's something that we're just so, so very proud of. There are a number of fundraising organizations in the sure. city. A lot of them focus on health and sport. What do you think distinguishes the work you do? And, and how do you communicate that to people who are willing to give time and money? You know, we really don't do an awful lot of promoting our own foundation. You know, our organization and our front office staff are so generous with their time and their energy and their efforts on top of our season. I mean, I think we have one of the most outstanding community relations department of any of the teams in, in Vancouver, of any organization in Vancouver. We're always involved. I mean, one of the reasons we have eight mascots, basically, is because we have so many requests for appearances that if we only had one or two, we'd have to turn people down. <laughs> and I'm not even a big mascot fan, but for some yeah. reason now, I've got the most mascots of any team in town. But, uh, you know, we don't do an awful lot of promoting of ourselves on the foundation. People that are involved, I mean, the hot stove luncheon tomorrow is our big fundraiser of the year. We'll do some messaging during the, during the season. We'll do some messaging during in some campaigns we do. But it's not a big, we're not going out to look to raise a million dollars because we don't need that. You know, we want to make sure there's other organizations that are successful as well. We're not trying to take money away from any other group. We're just trying to find our niche, help the groups of the people that we have, the pillars that work within our foundation, and um, hopefully do a little something good here in the community. Over the last couple of years, some of the sports franchises in town have struggled to get people out to games, but I think the Canadians are an example of a team that's done very well, despite maybe a very competitive landscape. What do you attribute that to? You know, a lot of it is, I think, the first thing I'll put on it is our community involvement. Um, I think that has been critical to us. We're involved with so many groups, organizations. Second, I would say it's affordability. Um, You know, we are a very affordable ticket. We're something that, you know, it's not just a corporate crowd. We want families. We want mom, dad, the children. We want young single people. Anybody should be able to come to a ball game. And that's our philosophy. So we keep our tickets at a level that we think, you know, people say, wow, it is very cheap to go to the ballpark. They say cheap, we say affordable. Uh, You know, (laughs) the whole thing is we want people to come more than once a year. And I think, you know, with our with our model that we've created, it allows people to do that. Hence, it helps drive some ticket scarcity for us. 
and uh, we fill up the ballparks. You mentioned that nostalgia piece. When it comes to creating a fan experience, how much do you keep intact and you don't touch it and you don't change it? And then how much do you maybe look and say, okay, maybe we can bring some new experiences? Well, we have a little fun. We started off, I remember when, when I first came to town and we started putting together our organization. We, you know, that's when we, even Jake and Jeff questioned me on some of the things we wanted to do. And, uh, you know, the sushi race. When I called, <laughs> when I called a costume designer and I said, this is what I'm kind of thinking. And I'm not a sushi guy. I mean, I had to go look up what, what, yeah. what is a seaweed, <laughs> what's a green sushi and what's the thing with the rice on it. So I had to do my own research. But when I called this costume designer, he looks at me, he's like, are you drinking? <laughs> and, uh, but you know, they were like, do you think people will like that? I'm like, I think it'll be pretty fun. And then the dancing grounds keepers have been a huge hit. You know, the one thing we like to do with the nostalgia that we have as an organization, the one thing I don't want to do is make it a silly entertainment environment you want it to be in there's a fine line between being silly and being goofy and i think being a fun professional organization and there's a, you know a lot of the things with minor league baseball there's a lot of teams that go kind of i think two steps too far mm. it'll be something a little silly and when you look silly you look minor league we're not a, we, we don't operate as a minor league franchise we play in a minor league which is the northwest league but we're going to run a major league operation Fair enough. Speaking of minor versus major league, uh, I, I know a lot of people in this area who are Blue Jays fans. Do you think enthusiasm for that level in Canada has maybe uh, translated into increased demand for attending a Canadian team? Well, I think, you know, when we we were doing, we were just starting to swing the pendulum a little bit with the last organization we were partners with. But when we made the switch with Toronto, you know, it's funny because we were, it was a fine line. Where do we go with this? Do we actually, do we go with Seattle or do we go with Toronto? And um, it's funny because I'd go around and I'd see people wearing Jays hats and I'd be like, what's your favorite Jays moment? And then I'd see people with Mariners hats and I'd say, what's your favorite Mariners moment? But the thing that swung it for me was the Olympics. Mm. Just the swell of patriotism throughout the country. Uh, and then we met with the Jays and obviously the, with Rogers, they had some, they had some thoughts and needs of wanting to increase a West Coast TV broadcast for the ball club, a West Coast presence for the ball club, and it's been a perfect fit ever since. So I think it really, it realistically, was it timed out where our growth was about right, the needs of Rogers was about right, the people that were involved with Paul Beeston and Alex Anthopoulos, who was a friend of mine from the Expos, we kind of put this thing together and it. It just took off, and I think everybody's benefited from it. Our organization, the Jays, and specifically our community. Yeah, for sure. What would you say are some of the greatest challenges you're facing? Well, I think some of the greatest challenges are just, you know, now if you're not sold out every night, everybody's got a question like, <laughs> what, what's wrong? And uh, but no, I mean, but we're operating. You know, Nat Bailey Stadium is just a classic heritage building. We've done some expansions to get more people in it. You know, one of the things with the expansion that we take very seriously is maintaining the feel and the essence of the original building. It still has to feel like Nat Bailey. Um, that's a challenge, but also operating in a 70-year-old building has its own challenges. So we're operating a 70-year-old building at maximum capacity. That brings on some challenges. But again, um, just our challenge every day is making sure everyone who comes to the ballpark has, when they leave, they have a smile on their face or a memory in their mind, and they want to come back again. That's our biggest challenge. 
looking at the season ahead, both for the team, but also for your foundation, what can we expect? Uh, team, will get a little bit more knowledge about that after the draft. We'll have some of the kids from last year who were at the lower level down in Bluefield, so I expect us to have a competitive team. We'll have a new manager this year, Casey Kandel, who was an old former Expo. We'll be managing uh, the Seas this summer. Foundation-wise, we're hopefully we're going to have a, a new initiative that we're going to announce Friday, and it's something that I'm really proud of. It's going to add just another arm to our foundation, another way for us to impact our community, and our, we always try to impact through our sport, which mm-hmm. is baseball. So we'll try to do – we'll hopefully have an announcement on that Friday, and if it's not Friday, it'll be soon after. Um, but we're, we're just going to keep keep growing and having fun and waiting for the summer to get here. Perfect. Andy, thanks so much for coming on the My show. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Andy Dunn, president of the Vancouver Canadians. Storm clouds are gathering on the horizon for Canada's investment industry. And you know what? That horizon may be getting a bit too close for comfort. Ian Russell is the president and CEO of the Investment Industry Association of Canada. Each month, he publishes commentary on the state of the industry and trends within it. And today, we're going to look at some of the threats facing Canadian investment firms. Ian, as always, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome, Haley. It's always my pleasure. 2018, it saw fairly strong performance from firms, but even so, you're highlighting in your commentary that there are some threats just below the waterline, so to speak. What are you seeing? Um, yeah, that's a, the I think the key takeaway from these fairly optimistic notes. One is uh, really beginning uh, in the uh, third quarter. Uh, we've seen uh, a real sell-off in uh, equity markets in Canada and the U.S., and uh, we anticipate that trend to continue. And there's a whole range of factors that um, have contributed to that. Uh, the trade wars, um, uh, weaker uh, concerns about weaker global growth, um, energy uh, prices falling through much of that period, and of course the discount with between Canadian crude or Western Canada crude and um, the um, uh, WTI um, um, measure, the price measure, uh, that that discount had uh, had widened quite a bit. I think Canadian prices got down to fourteen dollars a barrel at some point. Yeah. And um, and then uh, the other factor, aside from the economic and market conditions that turned negative in 2018, and um, the outlook being that that downward uh, trend in markets will continue or level off, but we don't see uh, a rebound in equity markets uh, in 2019. The other factor uh, is that we've seen costs uh, accelerate in the business, uh, operating costs. The trend has been upward, and we see that trend accelerating in 2019, um, largely because of um, uh, both uh, the demand for technology was itself is increasing at a pretty rapid pace, and uh, we've had a fairly rapid pace of um, regulatory reform that uh, has contributed to uh, to the cost increases. So the combination of the two means uh, with revenues uh, going down and costs going up, the, uh, the operating profit uh, is being squeezed and um, that's uh, certainly going to uh, have an impact uh, uh, through much of 2019. How much pressure is there on firms to adopt technology and modernize the services that they offer? Well, that's a really good uh, point, and I think you have to trace the uh, trace it back to uh, 
the demand for financial services. And um, and what we're seeing is um, uh, a very strong continued demand uh, from the financial consumer for um, diversified financial products and services. And to be able to deliver that more integrated range of products and services, uh, there's a need for technology. And the technology really comes in, I would say, two components. One is the component of um, getting more efficient or lowering the costs. So you're bringing in technology, front office and back office, to manage um, the transactional flow, uh, the order execution for the various uh, portfolios. And um, you're also looking at uh, the costs um, to provide convenience, which um, is through uh, digitalized um, uh, various channels of digitalized information. And this is information that's uh, increasingly closer to real time. It's it's information that's available on websites, uh, uh, can be provided through uh, emails, and, and most importantly, I guess, mobile devices. Um, so uh, that's one use of technology. Again, uh, trying to control or reduce overall costs and provide greater convenience to the consumer. And then the, the other use, which is really the fintech applications of uh, trading. So it would be robo-investing, uh, which is uh, more automated uh, portfolio um, management. Um, and there, this is the online wealth management started uh, with uh, the specialized online, online providers um, such as Wealthsimple and uh, Wealthnest and has moved over to uh, being embraced uh, by the industry broadly and become more sophisticated in terms of really skills, be it, um, again, on the thinking more on the robo side, uh, is hybrid models where um, you have access to an advisor um, at times as you manage the portfolio uh, in a very cost-effective way um, through these uh, robo models. And of course, the other dimension uh, is just self-directed investing, which has been around a long time. So it's the technology um, platforms to uh, do it yourself, buy and sell stocks. So um, that's obviously another important element of technology. So what's what's tended to be an important trend or developed into an important trend in the retail business is giving clients the option of having an advisor provide the uh, discretionary management or have um, or, or do it yourself on the same on the same platform and they're complementary and very often it's all provided now and onto this integrated financial platform and that really is I think when you stand back and look at it all that is where the whole financial business is going Interesting. Given the the increasing digital nature of financial and investment services, as well as the higher operating costs you mentioned, how difficult is it for, say, new firms to enter the market in 2019? It's very difficult. The thresholds for entry into the business, Haley, are very substantial, um, both in terms of the fixed costs you need, the fixed cost infrastructure um, to build um, 
the technology related platform to get into the business. Um, and then uh, the um, uh, ongoing um, costs of uh, managing and operating the technology. And the other costs, which are much more significant than ever before, is the regulatory requirements that are placed on firms and the related compliance staffing that you need uh, and the related technology you need to meet these regulatory compliance requirements uh, is far more, far higher, um, the requirements far higher than um, would have been the case, say, 10 years ago or even five years ago. Um, the uh, So what's driven those higher costs to get into the business and continue in the business um, are just um, the competition in the business and demands from uh, consumers on the one hand, and uh, the regulatory standards have gone up. And on the latter, um, to some extent, or to a large extent, um, they had to go up. I mean, over 10 years, there's uh, the um, the standards have gone up. Uh, the the requirements uh, on firms uh, have gone up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, not a, uh, not a bad thing, but certainly comes no, with a, a, bad thing. a burden. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a burden, and I think the caveat is that uh, while um, uh, higher requirements, and again, looking back, say ten years, uh, there's certainly uh, there there's certainly um, a positive uh, that cert- they've they've certainly raised the standard, which is uh, good for investors and a higher standard of investor protection. I guess the the point that we would make is that uh, there are still inefficiencies around um, around that uh, process. And I think our obligation is really to uh, to ensure that the platform, the 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 regulation and the rules are as efficient as possible. So, but uh, the fact of the matter is, overall, to answer your question, is that the uh, the cost thresholds are much higher to come into the business than they've ever been, and that would be the case right across the financial sector. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a bit earlier the sell-off in the equities markets that we've seen. We've also heard from people in business and in industry that capital has been flowing south in part because of trade uncertainty, but also because of differences between tax competitiveness here in Canada versus the U.S. We have some new tax measures here. What are your thoughts on whether we might see more dollars coming to Canada versus the U.S. in the year ahead? Well, I think I think it's fairly limited. Um, in other words, the the northbound flows. Uh, I think for for two reasons. One is um, Canadian tax rates, uh, corporate tax rates, are still uncompetitive. And I agree with you that the um, depreciation allowances and the uh, capital write-offs, uh, those circumstances have those those capital requirements have have certainly uh, become more competitive, but that's only going to help out, uh, I think, uh, capital-intensive uh, businesses. And that leads to the second point, where there's probably uh, the, the sector in Canada that would, that would um, um, be uh, an area where you would see a lot of capital-intensive uh, investment is in energy. And right now, uh, both uh, energy and, and mining are uh, not attractive in Canada. So um, I, I don't think that, um, you know, f- f- that's a big part of the Canadian economy, that that's enticing a lot of capital flow. So I guess the bottom line is I would say that um, uh, 
the uh, the uncompetitiveness uh, is still there very much in corporate tax rates. And and the other reason is a perception reason as well. I think uh, the fiscal situation at the federal level is um, um, a, a serious one of um, you know significant deficit financing. And yes. Um, on a debt to GDP ratio, it still seems responsible, but that can be very vulnerable to uh, slower growth or uh, recessionary conditions. And I think it uh, is a, a, acts as a disincentive in itself. And um, the other thing is the treatment um, uh, of uh, smaller. Uh, well, that, that that would be a key, I guess. The um, uh, the, uh, the 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 general business climate in Canada, um, and of course, personal tax rates are very high, and that for businesses that are in more the human capital area are uh, less inclined to come into Canada as well. So th- those are some of the b- big factors. I think the perception argument, as well as the the tax reasons, and then for Canadian business going south, I think the um, higher tax rates on passive income for private corporations is, uh, has encouraged um, those companies which tend to be engaged very heavily and we talked about this before in investment banking um, merchant banking activities are, are looking for opportunities in the US which is still an attractive place to be so Canadian capital moving south so those flows are unfortunate and they're serious they have a serious feedback effect on uh, the Canadian economy Mm-hmm. Looking at the year ahead, what are you going to be watching? What signs are you going to be looking for? Well, I think what we're going to be doing is monitoring our industry very carefully, and that means uh, monitoring, uh, in particularly, in particular, two business lines. The, the key one being the retail business to see um, how resilient that business is in uh, weaker markets. I anticipate that um, that business will stay. Um, fairly robust. It just means it won't be growing as quickly as it would. And keeping an eye on the performance of the smaller firms in particular, um, because we've seen the costs uh, escalate even faster at the smaller firms than the larger firms. Um, And uh, they don't have some of the advantages large firms have, particularly scale. So watching the, um, uh, you know, the health of those that small uh, firm sector, and I do anticipate we'll see further consolidation. So I expect that we'll see um, a higher rate of firms uh, leaving the business. Uh, And similarly, on the institutional side, we'll be on the corporate side, rather, looking at financings in the marketplace, which, as you pointed out earlier, had held up, especially in the small cap area, very well Mm -hmm. in 2018. So we'll be watching to see uh, whether financing activity uh, starts to come down. Like I would expect in sectors such as cannabis, where uh, there was a real buoyant level of activity in the last couple of years in that sector, as you know, um, I think that both because uh, the speculative boom is probably going to taper off a little bit there and we're going to see consolidation in that uh, that sector, we'll probably see the impact in terms of financing activity fall off. But we're going to watch it because um, there's also been a fair amount of financing away from cannabis in terms of private equity and in terms of non-resource, i.e. technical technology companies and and, um, pharma and 
and um, real estate. So we're going to be watching to see uh, how that holds up in more difficult conditions and the impact that that will have on uh, um, smaller firms. So it's going to be a difficult year, I think. It's just monitoring how serious the impact is going to be. Fair enough. Ian, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show with your insight. Well, it's very much my pleasure. Thank you, Haley. Thank you. That's Ian Russell, President and CEO of the Investment Industry Association of Canada. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified about new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or on Stitcher. And we want to get the word out about our show as much as possible. So feel free to share it on social media. We're on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. You can listen to more episodes and read, hear, watch more business news over at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.